Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world. Built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Join the discussion at Ping.tv slash gold. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. I hope everyone is doing great this Wednesday evening, going into Thursday morning, folks. We are getting closer and closer to Christmas. I hope everyone is getting all their shopping done. I know a lot of people are scaling back this year due to inflation, and that's okay. Don't feel bad about that. Christmas is really about being with your family, ladies and gentlemen, or being by yourself, if that's what you prefer. Just be happy, folks. Happiness is in your heart to each his own. You're going to find your own way to celebrate this joyous season. Try not to think too much about politics and what's going on around the world. Just give yourself a day or two to relax, ladies and gentlemen. Drink some hot cocoa, drink some eggnog, drink some apple cider, or maybe drink a whole bottle of vodka. I don't know. Whatever floats your boat, folks. All right, I got a late start today, so the show is coming out uh, at midnight, but I'm going to be putting it together late. This is episode 112. I actually slept in today, believe it or not, until 10, 12 a.m. I'm usually up by 6, 6.30, and this morning, was crazy, folks. I've just been so tired, I think, from waking up three, four times in the middle of the night with Willie G. Uh, we get up, my wife breastfeeds him, then I usually rock him back to sleep after I change his diaper. And so the last uh, week, it's just, I guess it was beating me up. And so this morning, Willie got up at about six, that's when he gets up, and he was kind of crying. Uh, it's like a witching hour colic kind of thing. Anyway, I've done a lot of research on it. So I was practicing this new method over the last few days, and this has to do with letting the baby release some of their energy. Uh, they have built up energy in them, and they can't get home from work, right, and drink a glass of wine, smoke a joint or a cigarette like we do. Uh, they can't go to the gym, they can't jog, and they can't get in a fight with their spouse. So what they do is they start freaking out, and they pump their arms and their legs, and they cry. And so when we pick them up, and we shake them, and we go, in their face, we're actually overstimulating them. Now, this isn't for all babies. This isn't across the board. There's a 100 different ways to approach each issue. Every baby's different. Every parent is different. Every situation is different. So what's happening over the last month, because Willie turned a month yesterday, on December 13th, 
I'm starting to be able to figure out which cry is when he's hungry, which cry is when he wants his diaper changed, which cry is uh, sort of this witching hour colic kind of blowing off steam, uh, and then pain, which he hasn't had one of those yet. So I don't know what his pain cry actually looks like. And then he, he gets a little bit of little gas, you know, when he eats too fast, and you got to burp him, but sometimes it gets hung up in there. So anyway, he gets up at six, and he's throwing a little bit of a tantrum after he eats and so i let him cry it out lasted uh, 11 minutes and if you pick him up and you keep playing with him and stuff and jiggle him around this process could go two hours so it goes 11 minutes he cries it out he snuggles up in my arms uh, i'm laying on my left side and he snuggles up in a fetal position like against my chest and my shoulder and i fall asleep with him this is about 6 30 6 40 in the morning next thing you know it's 10 12 I noticed my wife standing over me taking a picture of us, and I sometimes fall asleep on my back with my left or right arm over my head, all right? And so I had my left arm over my head, and Willie's next to me on the left side. He's in the center of the bed. I sleep on the right side, and uh, he's got his left arm over his head, too. So she gets this great picture. I stuck it up over at... Uh, over at Twitter, at Hackable Animals. You can check that out. So anyway, 10, 12 a.m. I, I was like, this is nuts. I'd never sleep that late. But at least I'm well-rested. I ran around, did some Christmas errands today. I talked to a couple people that are going to come on the show. So we're lining that up as well, folks. Uh, in fact, I talked to a good friend of mine, Chrissy Piccolo. She's been on this show, The Dust of Gold Standard. And I was on her show, Real World Witness. I re-aired that on uh, this podcast channel if you could folks if you could find an extra minute tonight or tomorrow night whenever you're listening to just say a prayer for chrissy's mom all right chrissy was adamant from day one about not getting the vaccine not being tested for uh covid or whatever the hell it is and so she held her ground as did i and many others many of you out there but her family members didn't want to listen to her and so her mother got the vaccine and last night she was having chest pains and she got rushed into the hospital and uh turns out she's got a blood clot in her intestines and so she was being rushed in this afternoon to emergency surgery now at the end of the day we can't definitively say that's because of the jab or because of the booster or whatever but i know a lot of us are seeing more and more occurrences this occurring in our personal lives and the experts will say oh that's anecdotal well i'll tell you this in my immediate family there are several people that are vaccinated and boosters some with multiple boosters and some of them literally have covid testing kits at home and they test themselves every time they get the sniffles they're basically germaphobes for the rest of their lives now hypochondriacs and so uh they're getting sick all the time they've got covid three four times supposedly covid whatever the test tells them it is uh covid three four times uh, i know people that have gotten jabbed that have cancer, blood clots, stroke, you know, heart problems, all types of things. A cousin of mine, she got jabbed while she was pregnant. Her daughter was born with a rare disease. I believe it was 
one in 500,000 or one in a million normally we get this disease or daughter has a disease for the rest of her life her daughter has to take medicine daily and visit the doctor once a month okay i have friends of ours that have been jabbed and boosted that wanted to have kids they're having problems having kids uh we know from our doula that there is this new phenomenon amongst the jabs where women's water is breaking long before they actually go into labor we've had several situations of people we met through the midwife circle people that were jabbed whose kids were born stillborn folks dead so they can say it's anecdotal obviously everyone is on high alert the people who are jabbed up like to look for people that are not jabbed who are dying and say that's because they didn't have the jab and those of us who are not jabbed we point out these things and say these people are dying or getting sick because they are jabbed at the end of the day we're, we're not really going to know but we all have our personal belief on this so if you could just uh say a prayer for chrissy piccolo for me uh, and her mom i would really appreciate that i know chrissy would and um you know it's just it's a very sad situation because so many of us fought with and battled our relatives and you know what they were fighting us and trying to tell us to get the jab because they thought it was going to save us and we were telling them not to get the jab because we thought that would save them and at the end of the day i think most people are decent dumb but decent really dumb but decent and so we were all trying to protect each other and that's something that i think we have to look at the bright side of this that we were all trying to protect each other all right there was someone on twitter earlier today i just want to address this who was having an issue i guess they were released from the hospital and they were at uh, physical training and something was going on between the physical training facility and their insurance company and they were saying that they couldn't leave the physical training facility and if they didn't complete whatever it was they were there for that the insurance company wasn't going to pay the bill and so i was tweeting back and forth with this person now again i don't know if this person is real who who knows these days when you're dealing with uh when you're dealing with twitter but uh, I just want to address this, and this is from everything that I learned in case anyone ends up in this situation. When we were at the hospital, when my wife and I ended up at the hospital where we did not want to be for the birth of our child, uh, you can listen to episode 89 if you want to know the whole story. As soon as Willie G was born and he was cleared by the NICU team, all right, and he was in my wife's arms and we got moved over to the like recovery area. Her doctor, uh, not her doctor, but the doctor assigned to her by the hospital that delivered the baby, uh, the OBGYN, <clears throat> and then Willie's doctor, not his doctor, but the uh, because his doctor isn't part of the insurance network there, so she was not allowed into the hospital. But the doctor they assigned him, the pediatrician, both of them wanted to hold Maggie and Willie there for multiple days. Well, about five, six hours after the birth, uh, Maggie was up going to the bathroom. She was fine. Everything was great. Willie was doing great. And so she wanted to go home. She wanted to come back home. And so as I said to the nurse who had put in, been put in charge of taking care of them, I said, we're, we're checking out of here. And the nurse said, well, if you leave against the doctor's orders, your insurance company won't pay for the visit. Now, I knew that didn't sound right, and I had heard of it before. So I texted our doula, and I said, Alyssa, blah, 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 is this true? 
And Alyssa said, no, that's not true. It's a complete and total lie. So I go on the internet because Maggie, you know, is kind of freaked out. She goes, oh, my God, we can't have this. What if the insurance doesn't cover it? I said, let me check it out. So I found an article on the American Medical Association site. No friend of ours, folks, but... Right on there, it said, that has been a lie. It's been a rumor for many years. Doctors actually train the nurses to say that, and they believe it. To basically say that if you leave the hospital against the doctor's orders, that the insurance company is not going to pay for it. Well, anyway, I start looking up on Blue Cross's site, could find nothing about this, right? So it's not true. One of the reasons, if you use common sense, as I was doing in that moment, as I was doing research, where you would know it was not true, is if you went into the hospital, let's just say this was a long-term stretch, and you had cancer, and first, the hospital doctor says they want to give you, I don't know, chemotherapy. So they give you, I don't know, 10 treatments of chemotherapy. And then they reevaluate, and they come back, and they say, we want to give you radiation. And you say, I don't want radiation. You know what? I'm checking out. I'd rather die. Well, the insurance company is going to say, we're not paying for your chemo because you won't do radiation. In fact, all these things that you deny end up costing the insurance company zero. So I understand from the liability perspective, if the doctors actually think you have a problem. For instance, let's say Maggie had blood clots, which she did not. There was nothing wrong. The doctor couldn't give me any reason. Or let's say Willie G had some infection in his lung, which he did not. The doctor could give me no reason other than precautionary for both of them, for them to stay. You know, I understand from a liability perspective, if they say, listen, your wife has blood clots and she could literally die tonight. We've got her on some medication and we want to monitor her for overnight. You know, you're being an asshole if you want to take her home. You're not being responsible. So I get that. All right. I get that. And so they make you sign a consent form that says you're leaving against the doctor's orders. Now, I assumed because they were making a big deal out of Maggie and Willie, you'd get a handwritten letter from each doctor laying out the case for why they want you to stay. No, it was just generic one paragraph form. One had Willie's name on it and one had Maggie's name on it. And it said, I'm leaving against the doctor's orders. That's it. So based on all the research I did, and I did more of it later. Now I'm not an insurance expert. I obviously don't work in a hospital. So You don't take my word. You've got to do your own research. But as far as I am aware, it's a complete and total lie. So if you deny certain care at the hospital, your insurance company is going to still pay, you know, minus your deductible, um, for whatever treatment you got prior to when you actually denied treatment. You are allowed to deny treatment. You don't have to do what the doctor says. Because if it was a blanket situation like that, let's say the doctor came in the room and he was an alcoholic and he smelled like booze. And he you go in there to get stitches on your finger and the doctor stitches him up but then comes in and says he wants to cut your left arm off and you say, no, I'm not letting you cut my left arm off. And then your insurance company says, well, we're not paying for the stitches. So folks, you can leave anytime you want. You're not in a prison. You know, if you actually talk to the doctor and nurse and you push them and you understand your rights as a patient, they will end up telling you you're not in prison. You can leave uh, based on your own free will. So just a lesson out there in case you end up in that situation. We're going to get into some of that with the healing doc from Twitter. He's going to be on the show on January 
fourth. All right, ladies and gentlemen, when I get back, we've got to cruise through this. We're wrapping up the International Monetary Fund, Central Bank Digital Currencies for Financial Inclusion, Risks, and Rewards, which was from October 14, 2022. And then we're going to get into the the, uh, global... I mean, this is going to blow you away. This is the World Government Summit on the New World Order, which took place in June of 2022. So we're going to start on that tonight, if we could wrap up with the International Monetary Fund CBDC panel discussion. Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. I hope everyone is doing great, ladies and gentlemen. Let's get ready to rock and roll. All right, I'm going to bring this back up here, ladies and gentlemen. First, uh, as we always do when we're bringing back this stuff, and unfortunately, what happens is I can't pack all this into one episode for you. I just can't because when these uh, panel discussions are an hour long, You know me, folks. I stop like every three seconds, and I've got to break it down and analyze it for you. So just a quick reminder, uh, you can listen to episode 111, 110, uh, maybe 109, I think, if you want to hear everything that came out of this International Monetary Fund panel discussion on CBDCs from October 2022. But again, the uh, moderator, not the moderator, the host of this event is Kristalina Georgieva. She already spoke. I don't think she comes back up in this. She is the uh, managing director of the International Monetary Fund. And then we have Queen Maxima of the Netherlands. She spoke. She kind of opened up this panel discussion. She's a big pusher of central bank digital currency. We then have Kathleen Hayes. She is the global economics and policy editor for Bloomberg TV and radio. She covers Federal Reserve, central banks, etc. Then we have the International Monetary Fund Deputy Managing Director, Bo Lee, who admitted to us that the CBDC is, in fact, programmable. They could decide what you buy, when you buy, and where you buy. He also talked about how they're tracking every single transaction down to a cup of coffee you buy where you buy it who you buy it from when you buy it and that this information collected by the central banks which uh, they say are part of the public sector part of the government they're going to package that up and sell that data on you to the commercial banks the so-called private sector so that they could run a real-time credit score on you 
And then he relates that to what they're doing in China, where uh, he was working before. He was uh, with the People's Bank of China as the deputy governor. That's their central bank. And so they're packaging your data on the governmental side and then selling it over to the so-called private sector. Then we have Cecilia Skingsley. She's the head of the Bank for International Settlements Innovation Hub, and they're building a lot of the technology around central bank digital currency in cooperation with Consensus, the company owned by Joe Lubin, who was co-founder of Ethereum with Vitalak Buterin, who was funded by transhumanist technocrat and government contractor Peter Thiel to actually build Ethereum, of which Ethereum is now the backbone of many of the central bank digital currency projects. All right, then we have Vera Songwe. She's out of the United Nations, and she's in charge of this Africa project. And Africa is a big target, a bunch of indigenous folks that we're not banking, and they're getting them all lined up with uh, digital currency. And finally, we have Perry Wargio. He is the governor, the head of the Indonesian Central Bank, and he was also executive director of the International Monetary Fund. All right, so that's all the people that we are going to be hearing from, ladies and gentlemen. And we've got about 15 minutes left of this one-hour and five-minute panel discussion. So I'm going to pick back up where we left off. We are at an end of um, a question that CeCe answered. That's Cecilia Skingsley, head of the BIS Innovation Hub. And it's getting kicked back over to Kathy from Bloomberg, who is the moderator of this panel discussion. All right, let's pick it up right here, folks. That means I can move on to Vera. Uh, and another really big issue, uh, and again, I think for people who are very much deep in the weeds here and just people talking about it, wondering about it, is financial integrity, it's money laundering, it's a financial crime. Uh, you, you have to set up the system so that you counter that. You don't let it happen as much as you can. And it, it happens in any kind of monetary system. But at the same time, you don't want to make the barriers so tight, I guess, that people can't get in. How do you view that? And how do you view the best way forward as these systems develop? I think that's a very good question. If you think about it on the continent, we're over 50 countries and we're all trading with each other. Most of our trade goes from country A to New York and then to country B on the continent. It's very difficult to find trades that go from South Africa to Angola or Zambia to, to in, because the currencies are different, but also because we're trying to standardize the currency either in dollars first. But part of that then means that the know your client requirements are a lot more stringent and a lot more difficult. However, there is a very good example that's happening right now between Thailand and Hong Kong, where they're already working on CBDCs and testing out, you know, on one of the more active trade highways, how can we actually make that work? That's an experiment that's happening as we speak. And on the continent, we are looking at it. Right, so she's talking about, this is Vera Songwe speaking from the UN Africa Project, but she's talking about the Bank for International Settlements Innovation Hub, Embridge project that we read about, and that was designed by consensus that I just mentioned before, 
and it's run on top of Ethereum. So right now she's talking about taking all these different countries in Africa and having this CBDC trade go right between them instead of having commercial banks in the middle uh, out of New York City in the United States. Let's continue. Not only does it reduce cost, because first of all, we don't have to go to city and pay the additional uh, uh, transactions cost, it reduces time, but it also helps with some of this information and data that you spoke about in terms of the integrity of the data, the transparency of the data. And so I think that one of the... Yeah, integrity and transparency of data. Uh, but, but everything is going back to the central bank. The central bank is the only middleman in this system. I mean, in their ideal version of the system, you will have Dustin purchasing something from Maria Albanese, co-host of the Thomas Paine podcast on Fridays. Dustin purchasing from Maria, and the transaction will only run through the, uh, the central bank. And that's what they want. And then they collect all this data that they are then going to sell or give to the commercial bank, so-called private sector partners, in order to grease their wheels and get them on. As they talked about yesterday, Bo Lee brought this up. He's the deputy managing director of the International Monetary Fund. And he talked about packaging this data and then selling it to the private sector. And that's how they're going to get the private sector on board with this system. Now, we've heard over various panel discussions that they're also going to incentivize the commercial banks, the so-called private sector, to get on board with this and to lend their infrastructure, their existing infrastructure, and to allow CBDC to flow through that infrastructure by promising them that they can handle all of the retail bank accounts. So you and I can still have a bank account, let's say, with Chase Bank or Wells Fargo, TD Bank, Bank of America, one of these banks, but that's going to handle all of our central bank digital currency. So in between, they keep talking about this idea that data is being protected and all this nonsense. They're just gathering data on you, but what you're not realizing, uh, I think most people don't realize is that data isn't just to sell off to a marketing company so that Petco can deliver you better ads when you're scrolling through Facebook, wasting your time looking at people's posts. No, this is so they could run a real-time credit score on you, as Bo Lee mentioned, and what they're testing out and doing in China. But that rolls back into the social score system. So if you're going and drinking at a bar called uh, American Bill's, right? American Bill's Redneck Bar and Grill. If the system doesn't like that, the way that the algorithm is programmed, so the artificial intelligence mainframe picks that up, you might be blacklisted. You might go into a timeout and you can't buy anything for 24 hours. See, this is where it's all headed. And so what she's talking about this nonsense that the data is protected, there's more security, they are so full of it, folks. They're so full of it. All right, let's continue. Things that the CBDCs can do well, and we're all watching the Thailand, Hong Kong example, I think uh, you know well about it, to see really how you know it's going to pan out, and maybe that will be something that on the continent, we work with the IMF, the BIS, and many others to see how we can, at least for the bigger, larger trading blocks on the continent, put that in place. And again, as you said, I think it will take away, we also have the issue of correspondent banking, and correspondent banking has been a very, very difficult problem for us since 2008 because once there was, once there is any kind of 
uh, semblance of malfeasance in a banking system, you know, then you get correspondent back shut down, which means that there are no letters of credit for small businesses, people don't have access uh, to, to capital for trade. A lot of the trade that is done in the developed world is essentially, you know, rollover trading, you buy, you sell, you get more resources. And when you have the correspondent banks closing because of issues of integrity or lack of uh, knowledge and you know your client, it becomes much more difficult. We believe that with central bank digital currencies, some of these issues, we hope, with the right legislation, as you've said, and with better d data management, we'll take some of that away. Okay, so she's just giving you a bunch of examples here, uh, really talking to, let's say, the merchants, how they're going to help them be able to trade faster. Remember, she's selling this idea to people in Africa. That's her job. That's her position. And so she needs to be able to sell them. But they already mentioned in what we analyzed yesterday that it's easier for them to push this system of central bank digital currency into areas where the people are so-called unbanked or underbanked than it is to come into a place like the United States where we're used to this system and then try to sell us on a new system. So she's giving you a bunch of reasons uh, how they're going to sell this idea. Creating all these problems, right, that their current system has or they're going to intentionally make those problems much worse like let's say you wanted to drive somebody out of at&t intentionally and push them into comcast now they gave an example yesterday uh cc did the head of the bis innovation hub and she said we can push people into the system uh, if we basically don't give them any other options. So let's say they wanted to shut AT&T down and move everybody over to T-Mobile. So instead of just announcing that that's what they're doing, they just get rid of all customer service at AT&T. So you go online and you try to chat with the support and there's no support. You try to call and you just talk to a robot. You could never get a human on the phone. You go down to the brick and mortar store and it's closed. You go on their website to try to order a new product and you can't log in. See, all of a sudden, you say, I'm closing my AT&T account. Magically, that's the one phone number that works. And you get a guy who goes, okay, I understand. We'll close the account. And they drive everyone over to T-Mobile or Verizon or Cricket or whatever it may be. See, that's what they're doing. They're going to create, they're going to engineer problems in the system they currently control in order to push people into the new system. So that's why she is talking about all these problems that were not problems. Most of this supply chain stuff was not a problem before COVID land, the high school theater production. Yeah, there's people talking about how the problem started years earlier. But as the central bankers, as the big guys, the elites, the prison planet wardens, the social engineer in class, grabs hold of this stuff and they monopolize and they centralize uh, the supply chains, the warehouses, the distribution through companies like Amazon, then they're also able to orchestrate kinks in the 
supply chain structure because they control it from top down. And then they can say, look, the supply chains are shutting down. The only way to resolve this is with central bank digital currency. This goes back to the founding of Technocracy Incorporated, the science of social engineering, and how they can engineer the decisions made by the public. This all has to tie in with problem, reaction, solution. And the solution right now, because that's a lot to absorb, is for me to go to a quick break. My name is Dustin Gold. This is the Dustin Gold Standard. I'll be right back right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to pain.tv slash gold. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to the Dustin Gold Standard. All right, folks, let's hop right back into this. So I want to wrap this up for sure today and move on to the World Government Summit. Something that's very important. They call us conspiracy theorists, all of us that talk about a new world order for the last 20 years. And they've got the elites sitting right up there on the stage saying, are we ready for a new world order? That's actually the name of the conference panel discussion. Are we ready for a new world order? All right, folks, let's continue here with Vera Songwe. Uh, she is wrapping up, ladies and gentlemen, United Nations Africa Council over there trying to push CBDC on the indigenous people of Africa. So let's go back. I think she's going to jump over to Kathy at Bloomberg. You've been shaking your head adamantly, Governor Orgio, on, on Vera's comments. So when it comes to this aspect of how you make it just tight enough to keep everybody on the straight and narrow and just loose enough to, again, let people in the door, what is your what is your view so far again as you and your team are working very hard to get a, a specific outline design plan out for a cbdc potentially by the end of the year okay so she's jumping back over to perry Wargio, and i told you guys he is the head the deputy governor of the bank of indonesia uh, and now the governor of the Bank of Indonesia. So he's the top guy with Indonesia's central bank. And they are currently rolling out CBDC uh, using a QR code system uh, that you have the QR code on your smartphone. This guy was also executive director of the International Monetary Fund. And in case you weren't with us yesterday in episode 111, I suggest you listen to it because there's a lot of really important intelligence in there if you want to understand this whole system and what's coming. But this guy has a very thick accent, pretty hard to understand, so I will stop and break it down when appropriate. Let's continue. There is the choice of design of CBDC. Of course, like Mr. Bolis says, public partnership. CBDC issued by Central Bank. But how to issue, there's two ways whether wholesaler, which is central bank, will choose a big players, national payment industries, and issue to them, and then they will issue to the retail. 
Okay, okay, let's pause there for a second because this is important because they're actually building it. Indonesia is really far ahead with this stuff. So he just said you have the wholesale industry, you have the retail industry. We went over this in past shows. But wholesale is basically the commercial banks, the regulated non-banks, dealing directly with the central bank, right? That's wholesale. The money transfers between the central banks and then these uh, commercial banks, the so-called private sector banks. And then you have retail. And retail is going to be the so-called commercial banks dealing with the manufacturers, the distributors, the wholesalers, the suppliers, the retailers, all the way down to us, the consumers. All right. So that's what he's talking about. And then he brings back up public-private partnership, which they've stressed a lot in this conference. We know all about it. Public-private partnership. Unbelievable. One of the great things. We love the public. We love the privates. We all love privates. We have privates. Whether you're a man, you're a woman, non-binary, anything in between, you have privates. So we all love privates. Love the private places. Love the safe spaces. We love it all, ladies and gentlemen, believe me. So you all know what the public-private partnership is. It's a scam operation. That is the main focus of the World Economic Forum. Is the Chamber of Commerce bringing the so-called public and so-called private sectors together. So that's what he's talking about. And he said the central banks will create the CBDC. So these are digital tokens. They mean nothing. It's the same thing as them turning on a printing press and printing fiat currency, money, paper money, or minting coins, metal coins. And so they're going to print these digital tokens and then they're going to hand them out the central bank will hand them down to the commercial banks the so-called private sector and they will distribute them to the manufacturers the suppliers the distributors the retailers the wholesalers and you and me the uh, consumers all right let's continue that's what we call it the sign one wholesaler or center bank issue digital currency and just let everybody go retail Okay, so he said, design one, the central bank of Indonesia will mint the CBDC digital tokens, distribute them out through the wholesale market, and then the wholesale market will push them out to the retailers. Let's continue. There is retail CBDC. There is plus minus and what the country have. Most countries, they already have national payment system, industries, then usually center bank only go to the wholesaler. This wholesaler that will di- distribute the retailer. This is public partnership. Right, so he's saying in the current system, the central bank distributes the money to the wholesalers who then deals with the retailers, and that is a public-private partnership. Let's continue. But many countries do not have a national payment system industry. Usually those countries that do, uh, you know, the digitalization based on the telecommunication base. That they will go directly to the retail. So this is two ways to do CBDC. Okay, so he's saying some countries do not have a national payment system industry. So therefore, the central banks will go directly to the retailers. Let's continue. Issue by central bank, and then you choose wholesaler or you want to just do the retail, depending on the, the, the country. Two, three aspects that need to be confronted. Okay, so now he's saying 
based on and this is what wide awake jim will talk uh, uh talk about in part based on different countries with different cultures different economies different systems there's going to be uh issues with that that's what wide awake jim says well jerry addresses it right here is that you can have the system where the central bank gives the cbdc to the wholesalers the wholesalers push it out to the retailers and then it gets into the hands of everyone you could have the central bank just pushing it out directly to the retailers or you could have the central banks pushing it out to the wholesalers and the retailers there's three different models let's continue one the design the proper design with indonesia will choose wholesaler really good many countries choose wholesaler but some of them retailer proper design second of course so he said the proper design so you have to choose that which model you're going to go with let's continue the connectivity interconnectivity interoperability interintegration of the payment system infrastructure and financial market this is the requirement because otherwise you cannot distribute digital rupiah or digital country if the payment system and money market is not integrated Right, so he's talking about integrating all of the various uh, pieces that make up a country's financial industry. You have to integrate that. It has to be interoperable. And so he's talking about the design of the system and the technology. It's technology platform. Telephone, this is where BIS, working closely, also in the Asia, there's a number of platform technology. In Asia, there is working on the M-Bridge. And then there is Project Dunbar and other project of the BIS and so on. Platform, the correct platform, which is actually the central bank and BIS working closely. What is the proper design? And this okay, so he's talking about the Bank for International Settlements, which is the bank for the central banks, working with the central banks to develop the appropriate system. He also mentioned Embridge, which he said Indonesia is using, and Embridge is this cross-border system built by Bank for International Settlements Innovation Hub, and that was actually designed by Consensus, the company I told you that is building on top of Ethereum, whose founder uh, of Consensus was the co-founder of Ethereum, along with Vitalik Buterin that Peter Thiel funded to actually create Ethereum. I know, it's getting complicated, but luckily... When I'm on a topic, folks, my brain connects all these different dots from all these different sources. You're never going to find, I I love what people say to me, and I try to explain this to them, uh, people in my family or friends or whatever. Okay, you're saying all this. Well, where's the source? The source is the dust and gold standard because I had to, as you see, let's just talk about central bank digital currency, UBI, smart contracts, all this. In the last uh, 13, 14 episodes we've been covering this, how many different sources did I have to review and analyze for you to put all this together? A hundred? 90, 80, something like that? Between articles, white papers, websites, videos, speeches, panel discussions, uh, Wikipedia articles, references to books. 
So we're putting it all together. There is no other place. You're not going to go find Alex Jones writing an article at InfoWars about this. It's us right here at the Dustin Gold Standard that are putting all this together. We're absorbing as much information as possible to then be able to tell the whole picture. If we were writing a book about this, this is the type of research we would do on this, and then we'd write the book. Now, people read the book, and you have 500 references in the back of the book. They wouldn't say to you then well what's your reference what do you mean where'd you get all this the 500 references in the back of the book what do you think i read another book and then copied the book to write my book no this is the research that we're doing folks so we're putting all these pieces together let's continue it's also important this platform because then every country when issues domestic cbdc will also go go cross-border and this is this is important and last but not okay so that was important because he's saying this is why individual countries obviously they're running this out of the central banks there's what 190 central banks 190 countries with central banks as long as they're working in cooperation with the bank for international settlements international monetary fund and the world bank then it's all going to work together and they can have cross-border um cbdc because it's all being built on the same system this is all being plugged into the algorithms that are going to run this it's all being done ahead of time this is why they're really pressing on the design and so when you look at this company consensus what they're doing in part is they are targeting certain countries that have certain financial infrastructure. So say the financial infrastructure of the United States is different than the financial infrastructure of, say, Uganda. So Consensus is going and partnering with companies like Visa because Visa is in 80 million merchant shops and God only knows how many people walk around with a credit or debit card that say Visa on it or a prepaid credit card. Right, So they partner with one of these so-called private sector companies like Visa to utilize their infrastructure, and this is how they're going to distribute the CBDC across the entire retail sector. But if the main hub is all built by the Bank for International Settlements, it all ties in together, and now you can have trade between, say, the United States and Uganda with no problems. This is what they talk about when they're saying that it's interoperable. All right. So just absorb this stuff, folks. I know it's difficult listening to Jerry with the accent, but he drops a lot of very important intelligence. You just have to be able to kind of take in what he says and then put it into layman's terms, which I watched this three or four times and took notes on it uh, because I knew he was going to be difficult to understand and I wasn't going to be able to try to interpret what he's saying in real time. So don't worry, folks, we're going to break it down. We have about 10 minutes left of this panel discussion. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Join the discussion at Payne.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. All right, folks. 
We're going to go right back over here to Jerry. Old Jerry here, the head of the Indonesian Central Bank, folks. Jerry Wargiro. Oh, I, I didn't want to start playing that while the music was uh, fading out, folks, because I know it is difficult. All right, let's continue here. CBDC is always digitalized platform technology. At the end of the day, central bank and regulator must work together. What is the exchange rate arrangement? What is the proper you know, uh, capital flows management? What is also the cyber security? This is where the IMF play the role of global policy on exchange rate arrangement on also capital flows management and as well as also operational risk and such. This is the route to go to the CBDC that we work closely under Indonesia presidency with the IMF, thank you IMF, with the BIS, you know, we are working closely on, on that aspect. This is where actually the route to go. In the meantime, just do financial inclusion through digitalization of the payment system, introduce QR, okay. doing the fast payment, cheap, financial literacy, empower the woman, empower the SME. This is what we are doing. Okay, okay. So at the end there, he spills out, right, in his broken English, he's got to spill out all the taglines, right? So he's talking about the different design elements and options, working with the Bank for International Settlements, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, being partners with the so-called private sector, commercial banks, and regulated non-banks. But then he starts spitting out all the bumper sticker slogans. Financial inclusion through digitization of money. Uh, inclusion, include women, women empowerment. Uh, you know, and he starts just spilling out all the different bumper sticker slogans that we hear time and time again. And so Kathy over here from Bloomberg kind of keeps pushing them. She obviously is, I don't know, personally, but the character she plays is in favor of central bank digital currency. And she's trying to push them into how we're really going to, how we're going to force this down the throats of the so-called private sector banks and then all of the consumers. And these guys are all on the same page. Uh, whether you're listening to panel discussions from the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, the IMF, BIS, all on the same page, all working off of the same bumper sticker slogans, right? And so that's what he did. He just vomited out all of the bumper stickers right there on stage. Let's continue. I know, Cecilia, you want to jump in. Yeah, no, so Perry, you, I think you, you outlined kind of uh, the variety of, of, uh, of, of uh, paths that, central, that, that the countries can take. And, and uh, that, is, uh, that is sobering. Uh, we, we will not find a solution that fits all. Uh okay, this is important because this is Cece. Oh, Cecilia Skingsley, and she is the head of the Bank for International Settlements Innovation Hub that is running the Embridge project of which Jerry was just talking about that Indonesia is using and we keep hearing about Hong Kong being involved with these cross-border tests. And so she just gave Jerry a pat on the back where he mentioned the three different models uh, for CBDC that we just discussed in the last segment. And she's saying that's sobering because we do have to come, they have to come to terms with the fact that there's no one-size-fits-all solution. But as I was explaining 
to wide awake jim and now he's been going through all the documents with a fine tooth comb so he's going to come on here soon and break all that down for us is that in my opinion based on everything i reviewed from the technology side and now we're looking at the central bankers these economic terrorist mafia bosses uh talking who are overseeing the technological side of this talking about how they're going to do it and so i mentioned to wide awake jim I don't think they have to roll this all out as one giant system. They're going to piecemeal it together. And I think that's what you're seeing coming out of this conference. They know they're going to do that. It doesn't even seem like it's a hurdle to them. That's just part of their business plan. All right, let's continue. Uh, we will not end up on, on, uh, on, on platforms that we all agree on because we have to be realistic. Not all countries of the world is prepared to play well with all other countries in the world. Mm -hmm. So there will be different solutions uh, and uh, there will be different levels of of, of con connectivity. Um, it, it's, it's fun to talk, listen to, to some of you. Uh, you're talking about problems and I'm, I'm, I'm immediately thinking about, yeah, we have a project about, for example, offline payments. Um, and we have the issues around correspondent banking, there are AML, uh, uh, kind of the, the monitoring of that has, has caused a lot of friction. Yeah, we have a, we have a, we have a, a, a technical project about that. But my bottom line here is that technology can take us a great deal of the way, uh, but it's never the only, uh, you need more. So I think in the years to come, as, as me and my team and, and others who are kind of inventing and, and innovating showcase what could be done, uh, it's up to regulators and it's up to executive powers in countries to decide what, what should be done. Mm -hmm. And here, uh, that is the hard work, uh, and, and I really hope that uh, we could sort of can have a, be a little bit of give and take, and there might be some short-term cost for, for long-term benefits in the same way as I think it could be short-term costs, but also long-term benefits for the private sector getting into uh, a new equilibrium in this area. Okay, okay. Very important what she just said there. Again, she's head of the Bank for International Settlements Innovation Hub, heading up the technology that is driving all of the cross-border interoperability between various countries' central bank digital currency. And so she is taking this uh, somewhat seemingly very uh, sort of... Uh, realistic approach to this saying that certain countries might not want to play ball but we have to come in and we're going to offer the solutions but at the end of the day the puppet government officials in the various countries as i've told you we live in a technocracy pretty much a worldwide technocracy uh some would call it a quasi technocracy where there's still the illusion of a representative government here in the united states the illusion of a parliamentary system in various european countries and such right so what she's saying is yes the policymakers at the governmental level who have to answer to the citizens have to make some decisions and then we're going to come in and we'll take care of the technology and we'll connect them up to the right system and we have all these different test pilots and projects and such going on uh, so she's taking sort of this reasoned, uh, very realistic approach to the situation. But they're moving it forward. No one seems to be really concerned with this. All right. Uh, with pushback, you know, with pushback. They're going to get it done. They're the central bankers. They've got a central bank in almost every country. They control the monetary system. And now it's just a matter of pushing people 
into the system of what she talked about yesterday, pushing people into the system. I compared it to pushing you onto a cattle car and driving you into Auschwitz concentration camp. All right, let's continue. So, but we have to get the IMF perspective in here. Okay, you know, what, what can be done, what IMF can do and what they're hoping others will do. What's, what's, the, what's the plan? Well, we... Uh Okay, so now we're back to Bo Lee. He's the Deputy Managing Director of the International Monetary Fund. This is the guy who already admitted that the CBDC money will be programmable and that it will be trackable and that they are going to package your data, sell it to the private sector to allow them to run real-time credit scores on you. Let's continue. Uh, we just adopted a, a digital uh, uh, currency strategy last year by our board. And we are doing uh, many things right now uh, in terms of uh, digital money. Uh, we are doing technical assistance with our members. Um, we are doing analytical work. We are working with uh, BIS, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, on some of the um, regulatory standards for crypto assets, for example. But in particular, with respect to CBDC, um, we received a request for TA. Now, I, I want to point something out here, too, because we have been talking about crypto, cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and such throughout, uh, really at the beginning of the Dust and Gold Standard, but we talked a lot about it here going back to episode 97, 98, and I pointed out to you that there is really no way that cryptocurrency was ever designed to be about freedom and liberty and breaking the banks and governments, as many people were led to believe, and as many libertarians started talking about years ago. And one of the big ways you can tell, because you have to use common sense, folks. First off, Ethereum is being used as the backbone for... Uh, central bank digital currency in a lot of cases. All right. And the co-founder of Ethereum, Joseph Lubin, runs this company, Consensus, that is working with the central banks and the private side, the so-called private side like Visa and MasterCard, and working with the Bank for International Settlements and the IMF and ID2020, all of these organizations helping build this system. Well, you would imagine if Ethereum was designed to break the back of the uh, central banks and of the governments, right? And I already showed you the idea of decentralization is a complete and total lie because over 50% of Ethereum servers, the nodes, are located on Amazon Web Services. About another 20% are located in Microsoft and Google. So they're tied right into the technocracy. But would the co-founder of Ethereum, if he was supposed to be some libertarian, small government, break the banks, break the government guy, go found a company that now has investments from SoftBank out of China and Microsoft Microsoft, Bill Gates, uh, and then go work with the central bankers to build the central bank digital currency slavery system? No, he would not. That doesn't even make any sense whatsoever. And so what Bo Lee just said there is that they are already working on how to regulate how to regulate the crypto asset markets. Well, we see that being bandied about here in the United States. Now, how can a government, any government, uh, regulate the crypto markets if the crypto was designed to break the banks of government and uh to break the backs of government and the banks 
Using common sense, it would tell you that if it was completely free and operated on the mysterious blockchain, which is a complete and total lie, it's chaining you to a block. That's what it's doing. It allows you to be tracked in everything that you do uh, on a ledger basically pull up your digital footprint at any single time. This is the data that these guys are going to sell on you uh, to uh, assign you a real-time credit score, real-time social credit score. So you have to ask yourself, you have to use common sense. How can a government regulate something that's supposedly decentralized and can't be regulated? Well, when you sign up for your Coinbase wallet, that just happens to be the most widely known one, you have to scan your driver's license, give them your social security number, and it gets reported to the IRS. They openly tell you that. So they're working in cooperation with the government. If it was truly decentralized and designed to break the backs of government and to break the backs of the central banks, then it could not be regulated. If it can be regulated, then it is being controlled by the very state that it's so-called designed to fight. So it's all a lie, folks. This whole idea that crypto was ever separate from the state and the government using common sense, you can see that that's not true. Now, people will say, well, you, you can't prove that. Nobody ever admitted that. Nobody ever said it. Use common sense. How can something be regulated that supposedly operates free of the government and can't be regulated by the government? Well, if it can be regulated by the government, then it's not free from the government whatsoever. It, I know it's difficult to understand. It's like legal man of the podcast, The Quash. I know many of you listen to him. And as he says, uh, similar in a similar situation, the Constitution that everyone talks about. Well, if the Constitution had the ability to limit government then how are we in the situation we're in today so either the constitution created the situation we're in today or the constitution has no power to stop the situation we're in today so either crypto was created to help the central bankers to work along with the government or crypto doesn't have the power to actually be free of the central banks and the government you can't have it uh, both ways, folks. That just happens to be the truth. All right, ladies and gentlemen, absorb that. I know it's difficult. I'll be right back. And we'll get back to Bo Lee here at the International Monetary Fund Central Bank Digital Currencies panel discussion from October 2022. My name is Dustin Gold. This is the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. My name is Dustin Gold, and you are listening to Pain. Dot TV slash gold. Think about it like this, folks. If you and I were living in our half Amish community and we bartered, you know, I bring you a sack of potatoes, you bring me a bag of uh, lettuce. Or if we had a standard monetary system when we're not bartering that was based on pine cones. Right, so I bring you a bag of potatoes and you give me 25 pine cones. Well, if we're doing this physically, the government has a very hard time with regulating that. 
right? They can pass laws, but how are they going to regulate it? How are they going to know when you and I exchange a loaf of bread for 16 rolled cigarettes of tobacco that you grew in your backyard and processed? Or how are they going to regulate uh, our trading of pine cones? They can't, but when it's on the internet, it can be regulated. It actually can. They can pass laws and then regulate it. You know why? Because they can shut down all the exchanges. The government created the internet, folks. They can control anything on the internet they want. And when you have, I don't know what it is. We can look this up. I'm guessing you know, 20, 30%, 40% of the internet is probably housed at Amazon Web Services or Google. And those companies are partnered with the government already. Uh, Amazon, we showed you, has multiple CIA and NSA contracts, tens of billions of dollars. If the government tells Amazon to shut something down, Amazon's going to shut it down. That's just the way it is. So nothing on the Internet is truly free, ladies and gentlemen. It's not. It just doesn't work that way. But if we were training in real life, very, very difficult for them to regulate that. Sure, they can pass laws, but let them try to enforce it. They're going to go put a government goon there from the IRS to stand there and watch us uh, trade a bag of potatoes for a loaf of bread in our backyard. Good luck to them. Good luck to them. But trying to do this on the Internet in this way, thinking you're going to break the bank, the back of the central banks and the government using cryptocurrency, that's just uh, being very naive, ladies and gentlemen. All right, let's continue. Technical assistance, we received 43 requests last year from our 43 countries. And right now we have uh, 16 active uh, TA projects right now on CBDC. So we you know, help our members to develop their capacity to also analyze the macro financial aspect of CBDC. That is, what's the impact of CBDC on monetary policy transmission, for example, on financial stability. We also work with them on the cross-border aspect, as Governor Perry and Cecilia just mentioned. That those are particularly interesting but also challenging aspects of CBDC. Uh, based on our TA projects, we see uh, two challenges uh, mainly from our existing uh, uh, TA projects. The first challenge would be the what uh, MD just mentioned in her speech. There is a hesitancy among some customers, some merchants to join this ecosystem. So we need a better understanding of what's the cause What's, dri what's driving that hesitancy? Okay, so what he wants to know is why certain merchants don't want to get on board with central bank digital currency. So he's saying they need a better understanding, a better understanding of why certain merchants are saying, nah, I don't really want to accept it. I don't want to get on board with it. So now they'll send out the uh, boots on the ground to include them i mean coerce them i mean include them it's a system of inclusion it's a system of coercion so now they have to threaten them and force them into the system and, and it'll always be done through a combination of the carrot and the stick as you saw they've been talking about at this conference as well as the world economic forum conference on central bank digital currency of the carrot and the stick how can they bribe the private sector into the system and then how can they force them 
into the system. And eventually, once the system is in place, it will also be a system of carrots and sticks. Uh, Your life will be gamified through your digital ID, digital wallet, where you will be incentivized to do certain things that the government wants you to do. As you saw a few episodes ago on the Consensus website, they talked about governments and blockchain and how they can utilize this to track when your vaccines are up to date, uh, what your resume looks like, if you're worthy of getting a job, uh, smart city surveillance, all this stuff is going to be included uh, in this system, ladies and gentlemen. It's a system of carrots and sticks, but they have to coerce you, uh, either force you and threaten you into the system, trick you into the system, or bribe you into the system. So I'm glad, I'm glad that Bo Lee brought that up right there, ladies and gentlemen. All right, let's continue. One way to solve that, uh, that hesitancy, I think, relates back to our data question. That is, if we can create enough value, you know, if by joining this ecosystem, if consumer can enjoy a lot more financial services, if they can get credit, they may be willing to join the ecosystem, mm-hmm. right? Sure. The same thing for merchants. See, there, there's the carrot. There's the carrot. Uh, he's brought this up multiple times now is that by all the data they collect on you, can they then dangle a carrot in front of you, which is if you're part of this system and you're responsible and you spend at the right time, at the right place, on the right things, then we will lend you money. Okay, And you're going to need credit in this system, folks, because you're not allowed to save. They haven't gotten into this publicly yet. Uh, but if, but I mean, we know this from the expirable money, that's public. And we can tie this back to the original plans from Technocracy Incorporated going back to the 1930s. There will be no wealth, no savings. So they are going to have to incentivize you with credit lines and credit limits and being able to borrow and extra tokens. It's going to run. Your life is going to run just like when you're working on a gig app. Whether you're doing Instacart, DoorDash, Uber, Uber Eats, Grubhub, any of these other ones out there. And it says, uh, do six deliveries today and earn an extra $7 or whatever the hell it is. So they're going to gamify life through a series of incentives to do certain things. But if you don't do certain things, then you're going to be penalized. So if you do six orders today, you'll get an extra, you know, whatever, $12. But if you don't complete them, you'll be docked $20. See how that works? And this is what's coming. So he's talking about right here, offering up all this data to the private sector guys and then offering you incentives like being able to get real-time credit limits. Let's continue. Right, if they can provide more service and if, can, if they can earn a profit, they're going to be willing to join this ecosystem. So I think one way to solve this hesitancy is to create value by utilizing the data. So that's the first challenge. Okay, and let me bring this up because I've talked about this over the last 100 episodes. Money itself, in the way we look at it, means absolutely nothing to the central bankers, to the mafia bosses, to these economic terrorists. All right, they print the money, whether it's paper fiat currency, uh, metal coins, or minted digital currency. 
All right, it's all monopoly money. It's fake. It's just numbers in a spreadsheet, just numbers in an Excel spreadsheet. That's all it is. So to these guys, they can print as much as they want. They can mint as many digital coins as they want, and they can make their bank out inflated. The money system only works because we, the consumers, accept it as our paycheck, and we spend it, and merchants accept it when we bring it to them. That is the only reason the monetary system works. If Elon Musk was supposedly worth whatever it is today, $200, $250 billion, and he showed up at our half Amish community where we trade pine cones, all right? Let's say we don't leave the community. We never need cash. We produce everything within the four walls of our half Amish community, and we trade in barter and pine cones. And Elon Musk shows up with uh, a train, uh, a whole... A caravan of trucks, a flatbed trucks, with pallets of U.S. dollars stacked up and strapped to these trucks. All nice and neat, stacked high, saran wrapped. And he pulls up and he says, I have 250 billion U.S. dollars. Let me in to your half Amish community. I decided I was a bad guy. I'm leaving the system. I would laugh at him. We'd laugh at him. We'd say, we don't take that. That is worthless to us. So Elon Musk, the supposed richest man on earth, shows up at our doorstep. And to us, he's nothing. He's worth zero. Because we trade in pine cones. Right? Because we trade in pine cones. So the money system means nothing. But they utilize the system. Because the central bankers and the people above them, they're interested in power and in control. They want to be in control of everything and everyone. That's what the Internet of Things and the Internet of Bodies and all this stuff is about. So they use the money to bribe the 99%, the people below the one. It's actually the 99.9% because the point one is really the top echelon. But they use that to bribe everyone below. So that's how they know. If we say, we're going to give the private sector guys this and the merchants this, we'll offer the retailers this, we'll give them extra tokens, we'll give them a free donut. That's how they know they could bribe everyone because as long as we can spend it, and we can turn the extra token into a pack of cigarettes or a six-pack of beer or be able to spend it at a restaurant or be able to bring food home, then they know they can get you to buy into this system of complete and total control. It's so easy to figure out. So he's sitting there talking about how they're going to bribe everyone. Let's continue. The second challenge that we see from our members is that CBDC projects require resources and skills that are not within the traditional expertise of central banks, <laughs> right? They need to design products. They need to market the products. They need to price the product. And they need to distribute the product. So this is not the traditional central bank expertise. So central bank need to find a way to fill that gap, this resource gap this skill gap. The good news is that, you know, we have seen our members to be very creative and very innovative to try to fill that gap. You know, some of them would outsource certain aspects of this uh, development to the private sector. Some of them will have partnership 
with private vendors to co-develop okay. certain part of this project. Some of them will hire technical ex experts from the market to join the central bank so they can develop the core part of their, their operation internally. So there are innovative solutions to, to try to fill that gap. And we also see central banks, they learn from each other. Right. You know, central banks, like BIS is providing a very good platform for central bank to talk to each other so they can exchange ideas and experiences. Okay, so really good stuff there. Really good stuff. So you see him talking about how central banks, which are the clients of the International Monetary Fund and Bank for International Sentiments, BIS is the bank for central banks. So he's talking about how they generally don't market. They're more business to business, really, versus business to consumer, uh, which is how you'd say it in the business world. So he's saying they generally lack the technical guys and the marketing guys and the product pitchmen and all this kind of stuff. So they can either bring in technical expert consultants to come in and help them build this stuff in-house. They could form a partnership with certain providers to build this type of technology as we're seeing happen with the company Consensus. You know, or they can completely outsource it to a private sector company. So you see him talk about how the central bankers aren't really the tech guys. And this is where we go back to the World Economic Forum panel discussion we covered the other day with Francois, the head of the Bank of France. And I think he's a, a managing director at Bank for International Settlements. And he was talking about uh, how they also need to form these public-private partnerships because the private sector can do the innovation and the central bankers could bring the money the stability the trust in the system so as you can see they've got it all worked out ladies and gentlemen they are working through this stuff right now you can see clearly that this discussion was for their customers the imf the international monetary funds customers which are the central banks so they're working this out when we come back we're going to wrap it up there's only three minutes left in this panel discussion then we're going to move on to the um, second video, which is the World Government Summit discussion on a new world order. And they talk about central bank digital currency in there, technology, and many other things. Folks, we'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash Gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Payne.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on Payne.tv slash gold. And my name is Dustin Gold. All right, folks, we're going to wrap this up. So we can move on to the World Government Summit. So let's finish up here. There's just a few minutes left. I want to let it run all the way to the end. You never know what kind of nuggets you're going to pick up, folks. But I think you've got a solid understanding of all this. And we covered a lot in the last 13, 14 episodes, I would say so. Uh, I mean, I'm talking a lot, ladies and gentlemen. I have a very clear picture of what these international crime bosses, these uh, mafia hitmen, these economic terrorists are up to, folks. Let's go back to this discussion here at the International Monetary Fund. 
Vera, I think we've got time for one more comment here. And when, 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 you, when you hear these, all these things, and of course, you know, Cecilia just said, uh, you know, what could be done versus should be done. Uh, you know, we, we heard the pitch for the SMEs, right, and wholesale versus retail and all these things. I love, yeah, central banks, they have enough trouble with monetary policy these days without having to try to design uh, CBDCs, right? So Vera, when you put it all together, in, in considering all the work you've done with inclusion and that sort of thing over the years, what do you think is, is, is the, the step, one of the steps that we need to bring to the table here to, as we wrap this up that, I know it's a big question. All right, so Kathy of Bloomberg is going to kick it back over to Vera Songwe of the United Nations African Council. So let's see how Vera closes this out. I would say uh, exactly what you've been saying. We need to deepen digitization because it all starts with that. Yes, we can do a lot of it also on non-digital platforms, but it is so important to have those broadband highways flowing across the continent as almost a prerequisite for getting that done. And secondly, financial literacy. Financial literacy is an important, important part of the conversation because even when we have the CBDCs, if people don't know how to use it or how to use it well, then we get into issues of cybersecurity and then it, you lose confidence in the currency even before it becomes abroad enough uh quick follow on that okay all right so that's important there folks so eventually we're going to do a little digging i i know what financial literacy is uh i know this has been a game that the bankers have played for many many years but we're going to do a little digging in the future into the financial literacy around central bank digital currency because i want to see how they are propagandizing people i want to see how they're targeting uh targeting individual sectors individual industries and markets I want to see if they're already weaving this into the public indoctrination center school system to target our children. I really want to look at that because I understand inclusion is coercion. I understand how they're going to push this stuff out to the wholesale banks. It's very easy. Uh, the wholesale industry. I understand how they're going to push it out to the commercial banks. I understand even how they're going to get it to merchants. But I want to see how they're going to run their propaganda, mind control, brainwashing campaigns through financial literacy to the folks out there, to me and you. That's going to be a very interesting topic. So I'll start doing some research on that shortly. Let's continue here. Does that mean that this is also then a, a role for broader government policies? Yes. A lot more, uh, and, and again, I think even in this area, we need public-private partnerships. When I think, for example, of the Central Bank of Mauritius, they're doing so much work on digital literacy for CBDC use, because we assume that people know how to use this or that they will know when it comes how to do it. I think we have a very good example in Africa with uh, Equity Bank and Mwangi, who grew a bank that was really a small-scale local retail bank in the hills of Kenya to a, almost a billion-dollar bank today with a lot of financial literacy. This was the private sector working with the public sector, identifying some of the constraints and talking to the public sector to say, if you fix this, I can go one step further. If you fix this, I can go one step further. And I think in that example, we can learn a lot and see how we can vulgarize this uh, financial inclusion on the continent and beyond. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah, we're going to dig into this, folks. We're going to look at this because I want to see exactly what they're doing here in the United States. I want to see what these uh, crime bosses, these international economic terrorists have planned for their so-called financial in, uh, literacy, uh, how it's going to work. As, as I've said here, um, you know what? There's there's one minute left. Let's finish it up, and then I'll come back and comment on this. All right. Well, unfortunately, this, the clock is striking five, so I think I, I have to uh, stop uh, and asking more questions. And I, first, I want to I start. I want to start by thanking our panelists, and of course, Bo Lee, Deputy Managing Managing Director at the IMF, Cecilia Kingsley, uh, BIS Innovation Hub Head. Uh, Vera Songwe, uh, Chair of the Liquidity and Sustainability Finance Committee and Co-Chair of a High-Level Panel on Climate Finance at the UN, and Governor Perry Wargio, uh, Governor of the Bank of Indonesia, who spends a lot, of, a lot of his time on CBDCs. And of course, but wait, wait, I have to thank Queen Maxima, Madam Gorgieva, what a great way to start, and all of you for being here. You, uh, it's just wonderful, doesn't it feel, when you have an attentive audience who really cares about this. You're really appreciative for the time you've all spent here. And again, thank you for coming, and thank you for inviting me. Yay, yay. Okay, that's all done, folks. Let me just bring this up, because um, it's very important. I, I've mentioned it on the show before. We'll do some research into this, but... What's going to happen here in the United States, because you already have uh, a financial infrastructure. Now, let's just assume that many of you, um, let's just assume you work for an employer, but there are so many. So let's look at ourselves as consumers. Okay. We have already been trained to utilize Everything from PayPal going back 20, 25 years ago when they connected that in with eBay, we've already been trained to use Apple Pay, we've already been trained to use Google Wallet, uh, Venmo, Cash App, Zelle. I mean, Zelle is a payment system like Venmo between banks. If I look at that project, probably a project coming out of the central banks, all right? That's how they got it to be adopted by the commercial bank industry so quickly. Then when you look at it, if you're a small business owner, right, how long has it been since we started using Square, Square Up, okay, where you would take a chip reader or card reader and you plug it into your phone or your iPad and you could swipe a card right there at the farm stand or you could run a fireworks stand and swipe people's credit cards. Then along came Stripe and Stripe is a payment processor like Square that you can just sign up for, plug it into your website and the next thing you know, you're off and running. So all of these systems and then there's a lot of other ones. Uh, point of sale systems that people use for their little brick and mortar stores, uh, different payment processors you can use on your websites. So we've gotten used to the digital payment system already. Uh, the vast majority, probably 99% or more, are walking around with a Visa or MasterCard debit card or credit card uh, in their wallet. Some people have an American Express card. So the system's already there. And the way that they could force adoption very quickly uh, and not violently, 
uh, almost done in a way that people willingly accept it, is to attach CBDC into any of those systems. So, if and this is where the financial literacy comes in. If I own a coffee shop, Dustin's Coffee Shop, and I am using an iPad register that operates on Square Up, right? People could come in, they could tap the card, they could slide the card in, uh, they could scan the card, uh, the stripe. Um, and I'm able to, tomorrow morning, it pops up and there's just a little message that says, hey, Square Up is now accepting CBDC payments. Okay, and somebody comes into my store that morning and they want to tap their phone like Apple Pay, but pay with CBDC. Or they want to scan their Visa card or tap their Visa card or stick the chip into their Visa card and pay with CBDC. If my system accepts it, And I understand that I can either convert CBDC into actual money. See, this is part of how they've got to market this. CBDC is the same as money. That's what they're going to do. As long as I know I can spend it or I can move it into my account, I'm going to accept it. So literally overnight, you could have, I don't know, a million merchants that use Square Up accepting it. Forget about all the grocery stores and all the department stores, uh, all the home goods and the Marshalls and the TJ Maxx that you guys might still interact with. If you still go to the mall, those that'll be overnight. All these big chain stores, they're tied into this system already. So that happens immediately. So adoption from the merchants all the way down to the person who has a farm stand. Uh, There's very few people that I know left that only accept cash. Uh, I mean, there's a handful, but most now minimally have a square up reader on their iPhone and they scan your card. So the adoption at the low, 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 low end of the retail sector is going to be fairly easy. And then as far as just the people that are consumers, as long as you can still Apple Pay or Google Wallet or Venmo or PayPal or use your Visa or MasterCard, whether it be debit or credit card, using CBDC, you'll adopt it very quickly. There's not much financial literacy that's going to have to go into place there. Now, they said going into an indigenous area where people are unbanked is actually easier. I think it's much easier to actually introduce it here in the United States. How do you go from an African who trades in uh, acorns acorns, to then switch over to using a smart device or something? That seems to be quite difficult. But for us, if you wake up tomorrow and the government tells you that your Social Security is being paid to you in CBDC, but don't worry, it rides right alongside your current bank account, wherever you bank, and you can use your Visa card or you can use your iPhone, your Apple Pay, your Venmo, your Cash App, whatever it may be, to still make the payments you make, but it's just going to be in the form of CBDC. That is going to be adopted, I'm, I'm talking literally overnight. Now, if they roll out programmability and expirability and all of these negatives, uh, things that would be perceived as negative, if they roll all that out day one, then yes, there's going to be pushback and resistance to it. But I don't think they're that stupid. These people are brilliant. They've gotten this far. Look at the technocracy that we live in now. Okay, we're already there. So I think the rollout would be easy, but I am going to research Uh, financial literacy on CBDC and see what these guys are already doing because that's going to be a very interesting show. They just mentioned it so many times that 
it piqued my interest. I'm going to look into it. Folks, when we get back, World Government Summit, are we ready for a new world order? Ladies and gentlemen, I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard. I am Dustin Gold, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. Hey, folks, over the break, I just did a quick Google, ladies and gentlemen. When I take a break, my break is 60 seconds. Does the outro music. I've got a 60-second timer clock, and uh, it allows me to get a sip of water, drink some tea, and look at my notes, or Google. Then I come back and I record. So that's part of why I do it. Plus, on the public side, I like the commercial breaks to be clean. I don't like to just have me cut off in the middle of a sentence or a guest cut off in the middle of a sentence. So I do the commercial breaks. I actually haven't been doing them with the guest, though, because if I'm going to have someone on for two or three hours, it's kind of rude to keep stopping and breaking it up. But as we get uh, a little bit bigger, we continue to grow. If you guys keep leaving five-star reviews at Apple Podcasts along with comments, that'll happen. So I appreciate it. We are growing pretty much every day. Also, think about joining pain.tv slash gold. For $8.58 a month, you get access to the ad-free video version of this podcast, as well as the Thomas Paine podcast, and access to a like-minded group of individuals, and you could download the app or get on the website. It's Facebook-like, easy to use. You could teach people, learn from people, share information, or you can leave a donation at donorbox.org slash Dustin Gold Show. But anyway, as we continue to grow here at the show, then we are going to be able to do a lot more stuff here, ladies and gentlemen. A lot more stuff, a lot more research. Uh, and then also when we put out the public side of those interviews, I'm going to be able to have someone edit in the commercial breaks that go in and out. So it's a little more seamless. Everything will, everything will match up, but we're not there yet. But uh, look, folks, um, for the video audience, I just pulled this up here. Uh, WeForum.org, this is World Economic Forum. This is an article from October 2022. Four ways to ensure central bank digital currencies promote financial inclusion. I just want to go down here. Number one, it says financial and digital literacy programs. An economist, uh, econom, uh, economist survey, Jesus, Dustin, what are you doing? An economist survey found that the majority of people surveyed about digital currency were more likely to trust a product issued by their government than a crypto enterprise. Well, FTX probably uh, made that come true for sure. It says this is promising, but the survey also found we have a long way to go in educating the public about digital money. Respondents noted privacy and security as hurdles, but the primary reason people were hesitant about digital money was that they simply don't understand what it is. 
If central bank digital currencies are to te- are, are to reach unbanked regions and empower marginalized communities with new financial tools, they must be accompanied by robust education efforts. This starts with basic financial literacy, understanding of lending, liquidity, and debt, and extends to the very practice teaching of digital money. Uh, where is it made and stored? How does a digital wallet work? What are the benefits and risks? All right, so this is just on World Economic Forum. So we're going to start digging into this, as I mentioned uh, before the break, folks. But now I want to introduce you to the uh, World Government Summit. Now, some of you may have seen this. Dan Golvach brought it up when he was here last time. And so I said, oh yeah, I watched that. It was from June 2022. uh, And I forgot to actually review it here on the show. So we're going to get into this uh, because it's a nice little bookend to the central bank digital currency. So I'm going to try to get through this uh, today and tomorrow, and then I'm going to try, I think, to get Dan Golbach on Friday if he doesn't have a gig. He uh, is a musician. But if I can get him on Friday, it would be a good bookend to CBDCs, and then open us up uh, next week, hopefully, Wide Awake. Jim will be on, and then we're going to tie in all of his research. So this may be the last panel discussion I cover on CBDCs for a while, because I think we've got a solid understanding of this. And there are many other topics I need to move on to here at the Dustin Gold Standard as we continue to explain the history of how we got to where we are, where we are in the present day, and where we're going in the future as far as technocracy and transhumanism goes. All right, I'm over at Wikipedia. I'm just going to read through some of this for you so you understand what we're talking about. This is the World Government Summit. And this was founded nine years ago. In 2013, it's an NGO, a non-governmental organization. Its purpose is social and economic. Headquarters are Dubai, UAE, that's uh, United Arab Emirates. And it says here, the World Government Summit is an annual event in Dubai, United Arab Emirates. It brings together leaders in government for a global dialogue about governmental process and policies with a focus on the issues of futurism, technology, innovation, and other topics. The summit acts as a knowledge exchange hub between government officials, thought leaders, policymakers, and private sector leaders, and as an analysis platform for the future trends issues and opportunities facing humanity the summit hosts over 90 speakers from 150 participating countries along with over 4,000 attendees and it says here the history of this it's important to understand this because these guys are talking about new world order i'm I'm telling they actually use the term new world order the panel we're going to review is actually called are we ready for a new world order It says the World Government Summit was formed by a team of experts from different disciplines to bring government, business, and civil society together with the goal of improving the future for the 7 billion people on the planet. The chairman of the World Government Summit is Mohammed Al-Jiraji with Ohud Bint Coughlin Al-Rumaini serving as vice chairman of the organization. Omar Sultan Al-Alama is the managing director of the World Government Summit. In 2015, under the directives of His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al-Maktoum, Mohammed Al-Jirjaji 
chairman of the summit's organizing committee and minister of the UAE, United Arab Emirates, Cabinet Affairs and the Future, announced 10 key changes to take the summit to a new global level. The changes included changing the summit's name from Government Summit to World Government Summit, changing the entity structure and adopting the goal of providing integrated knowledge services for over 150 governments and global organizations. In 2016, the World Government Summit organization adopted a new year-round membership system. Members have exclusive invitations to attend the summit, communicate directly with its top speakers and attendees, receive reports issued by the summit ahead of the general public, gain exclusive access to private functions held on the sidelines of events, and have access to training workshops and executive education programs hosted by the summit in collaboration with global experts. Reports for the public about issues explored at the summits are issued by Oxford Analytica, uh, McKenzie, and Harvard Business Review on the World Government Summit website, and conferences speeches are available on the YouTube channel for the World Government Summit. All right, and then it goes through some of the themes here that they discuss. I'll just talk about this briefly. It says the first World Government Summit was held in Dubai in 2013 and has been held annually since then. In 2013, themes included building citizen trust in governmental entities, social media as a tool for civic engagement, private-public sector partnerships, and measuring development. All bumper sticker slogans. It says in 2014, themes included partnerships and innovation in government service delivery, government smart tools, Toolboxes, using information technology for citizen engagement, anti-corruption efforts, and helping citizens affected by conflict, and digital government. In 2015, themes included smart cities, innovation, and better jobs. In 2016, themes included the Sustainable Development Goals, the State of Sustainability, and Advanced Science in the Future of Government, Robotics, and Artificial Intelligence, Genomic Medicine, and Biometrics. So, uh, I'll finish with this, but let me just explain quickly. So, back in 2013, you have them talking about public-private partnerships, right? 2014, you have them talking about technology for citizen engagement, anti-corruption efforts. Dude, these are criminals getting together talking about anti-corruption. It's such a joke. And then digital government, which is moving everyone over to interacting with the government on uh, your smartphone. 2015, right, we have smart cities, innovation, better jobs. So they're moving people into the smart city prisons. 2016, sustainable development goals. That's the climate change hustle that we talked about with Wide Awake Jim. Sustainability, climate change hustle. And then science and future. That's robotics, artificial intelligence, genomic medicine, and biometrics. That's uh, merger of man and machine. That's transhumanism. And so apparently the Muslims are into transhumanism as well, which I knew that. I, I think you probably did too. In 2016, the summit included an inaugural Best Minister in the World Award, which was awarded to Greg Hunt, at that time Australian Minister of Federal Environment, later appointed as Australian Minister of Health. In 2017, the summit focused on four main themes. One, climate change and food security. So they are part of the climate change hustle as well. Number two, citizen well-being and happiness. That's a total joke. Number three, government agility and geopolitics and humanitarian aid with the goal of focusing on fundamental questions that aim to pave the way for the future across the globe. 
the summit was held under the patronage. Uh, we don't need the rest of this stuff. Anyway, it's great because the picture they have on Wikipedia is a conversation between Mohammed al Jurjawi, the head of it, sitting there with Klaus Schwab, you know, the head of the World Economic Forum. So you can go over to their website if you want. I pulled that up here. It's worldgovernmentsummit.org. And it says uh, right here at the top, how nature-based solutions in coastal areas can help address global crisis. And so they've got a picture of a sea turtle swimming it looks like i'm at a sandals vacation website when you first open it you go through the newsroom you can look at events and initiatives awards community anyway bunch of stuff on here if you guys want to flip through this this is their website again worldgovernmentsummit.org and then i just want to pop over here real quick uh back to consensus which we've covered here in depth that's c-o-n-s-e-n-s-y-s.net i suggest you go back and listen to those episodes this is the company founded by joseph lubin who was co-founder of ethereum with vitalak buterin who was funded by the transhumanist technocrat technocrat government contractor peter thiel and this was an article we looked at this is smart dubai blockchain case study for the government in the uae and this was an initiative spearheaded by His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, Vice President and Prime Minister of the UAE and ruler of Dubai, uh, which seeks uh, happiness, you know, in the world. And this was blockchain powering the city of the future. So we went over this, ladies and gentlemen. And it says here, I'll just read it briefly to you, just as we're moving into this uh, World Government Summit. It's important to understand what Dubai is actually doing. Most people wouldn't research this, but it says, Smart Dubai seeks to make Dubai the happiest city on earth. Participation from all city stakeholders, residents, visitors, business owners, parents, and families is a cornerstone of the strategy. This goal will be carried out by leveraging a wide range of technologies, including blockchain, artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, and by focusing on three strategic pillars, government efficiency, industry creation and international leadership collaborating with private sector and government partners smart dubai was established to empower deliver and promote an efficient seamless safe and impactful city experience for residents and visitors welcome to the prison planet this is dubai to achieve its strategic pillars smart dubai aims to introduce initiatives and develop partnerships to contribute to its smart economy smart living smart governance smart environment smart people smart mobility dimensions and complete and total morons who are going to live inside of this system and so you can go through this consensus article uh it goes through the goal the enterprise ethereum solution results achieved smart city university paperless strategy uh very interesting stuff here folks so we'll eventually circle back around to this as we review this uh, World Government Summit. But I want to show you a couple other things real quick before we actually get into the panel discussion. I'll be right back. This is Dustin Gold with the Dustin Gold Standard right here on pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on pain.tv. Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dustin Gold Standard right here on Payne. 
Radio.tv slash gold. Let me show you this. We did not cover this uh, before. This is again on the consensus.net website, C-O-N-S-E-N-S-Y-S.net. Uh, this says the enterprise Ethereum solution. This is important because I told you Ethereum is being used uh, not only as a basis for new uh, Web3 products and for building out the metaverse, it's being used as the backbone for central bank digital currency. Uh, all kicked off by Peter Thiel, the transhumanist technocrat, government contractor, oligarch, that pretends to be a conservative libertarian about freedom, small government liberty, when in fact he is actually helping create a complete and total worldwide technocracy. Oh yeah, it's, I mean, it's all in his resume, folks. All in his resume. But uh, let me just show you another solution here with Ethereum as we're moving into this Dubai World Government Summit, which is very important because they're openly talking about a new world order. And one of the panelists there was trained by Henry Kissinger, who had a major, major uh, hand on multiple presidents here in the United States, including advising President Donald Trump along the way. Uh, let me just read this. It says, the smart Dubai office issued an RFP, and from the multitude of viable candidates, consensus was chosen as a partner. In just two months of ideation, the team performed a high-level tech analysis with governmental agencies, IT teams, business process owners to define core requirements and decided on the first use cases, energy, real estate, medical, etc. Consensus then performed an analysis of the core infrastructure needs required to support the blockchain mandate. This analysis resulted in the creation of a blockchain platform as a service blueprint while simultaneously making a case for a blockchain-enabled digital identity. Blockchain-enabled digital identity. I told you, the blockchain is chaining you to a block. So please get it out of your head whenever you hear blockchain that it has anything to do with freedom, liberty, and human autonomy. It has nothing to do with that. Nothing to do with security and protecting your identity. It may protect your identity from the fake hackers out there, creations, illusions created by the government. The government, in fact, is the identity thief, folks. They want to know everything about you at all times to run through their AI algorithms. It says there, from there, the UAE pass was created to integrate with blockchain networks. Finally, Consensus built a sandbox environment to ether- uh, on Ethereum and held a series of 40 to 60 workshops for agencies to start prototyping and testing. All right? You see this? This is in Dubai, folks. All right, now I am at trade.gov. This is the last piece of information I want to review with you before we get into the panel discussion at the uh, Global World Summit. Um, this is United Arab Emirates Country Commercial Guide. And so I'm going to go down here to the leading subsectors. All right, so under here we have a couple of headings. Cloud computing, cybersecurity, Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, smart cities, 5G, opportunities, Uh, And I think that's it there. So let's go through this quickly because it's rather important. 
It says the United Arab Emirates is one of the largest data center hubs in the Middle East and more are planned. Up to $1 billion in additional investments are projected by 2026. In 2019, Microsoft Azure launched two cloud regions in Dubai and Abu Dhabi. In 2021, Amazon Web Services announced plans for a new data center region in the UAE. Did I not tell you? Did I not tell you that Amazon Web Services, Microsoft, and Google are behind pretty much all of this? Oracle's involved as well. Actually, I think they might mention that here. It says, the new region will consist of three availability zones and is set to open in 2022. In November 2021, Oracle announced the opening of its second cloud region in Abu Dhabi. See, there we go. Following their Dubai cloud region, government-owned entities... Uh, at Tisalat and G42 Cloud have all uh, have also had major data centers. With aggressive investments by the UAE government and cloud computing, the UAE's competitive business laws and their strong technological infrastructure, the ICT sector is forecast to continue expanding in the years ahead. Public cloud hosting in the UAE has addressed variations in resources and expertise uh, efficiently through highly specialized solutions. Despite these significant expansions, there is still sizable room for development that will require the expertise and know-how of United States firms. So the UAE is allowing us to go in there with Microsoft and Oracle and Amazon and build out all these cloud computing hubs, all of which will be used to run central bank digital currency. We already know the central banks are partnered with Amazon Web Services. We already know that Ethereum is as well. I mean, it's unbelievable, folks. It's all right there in front of your face. You just have to go look for the information. None of this is in secret. This is all publicly sourced information. Let's just look at cybersecurity, a topic that never interests me very much because it's a fraud. It says the UAE's geopolitical position and importance to the world economy in the energy, oil and gas, and aviation industry make the UAE vulnerable as a target of cyber attacks, driving rapid growth in the cybersecurity market. The UAE reports the highest number of malware incidents among consumers in the GCC. To protect the UAE's critical data information infrastructure and improve national cybersecurity, the government introduced the UAE Information Assurance Standards, which are a set of guidelines for government entities in critical sectors. Compliance with these standards is mandatory for all government organizations and businesses that are identified as critical infrastructure in the UAE. Several local players have been developing cybersecurity capabilities to capitalize on rising demand, while international IT security firms are expanding their presence in the country. With leading technology experts stating that the number one priority for UAE firms remains cybersecurity, the market is expected to continue expanding. Many UAE developed initiatives also drive the demand for cybersecurity. These factors and growing demand for cybersecurity solutions provide many opportunities for American companies. So as you're building a technocracy, you obviously need cybersecurity because they don't want people like you and I from hacking into their technological slave system. 
All right, let's look at this section, Internet of Things. Opportunities include smart services, the industrial Internet, and machine-to-machine communications. There are applications in the public sector for smart cities and telehealth, and enterprise applications include smart metering, asset tracking, and production optimization. The UAE has emerged as a leading global location for the deployment of Internet of Things solutions to enhance public infrastructure, especially in Dubai, as it aims to become a leading smart city. There's a foundation of cooperation in Dubai and the UAE across multiple sectors, including ICT, power, transportation, infrastructure, healthcare, and government. So there you go, folks. You've got the UAE aiming, uh, uh, putting Dubai as a leader in becoming a smart city. We'll eventually get back into this. It's actually on my list of shows to do in the coming future. We're going to get into Saudi Arabia as well. I want to show you that this stuff is happening all around the world. It's not just here. All right. And it's not an accident that everyone is building their country into a smart city prison planet, into a technocracy. It's all done by design. This is a section here. Artificial intelligence is a priority in the UAE. Artificial intelligence is forecast to play a role to contribute almost 14% of the national GDP. 14%, folks, by 2030 would be $96 billion. And the annual growth in the artificial intelligence contribution to the UAE economy is forecast to grow by 33.5% between 2018 and 2030 as part of the government's UAE centennial 2071 plans, the UAE Artificial Intelligence Strategy 2031 was launched to improve efficiency in the transport, health, space, renewable energy, water technology, education, environment, and traffic sectors. The UAE has already begun integrating artificial intelligence with industries such as education, healthcare, space, transportation, and aviation. Artificial intelligence is a key part of the ambitious plans of the UAE government to diversify their economy and become a knowledge economy. This includes the establishment of the Mohammed bin Zayed University of Artificial Intelligence in Abu Dhabi, part of an effort to develop more talent that can support the growth of the digital economy. The race between Gulf states to have the newest and most sophisticated technology, particularly in the field of artificial intelligence, provides a large market in which United States firms have comparative advantages. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. I mean, I've looked at this stuff before, but... You know, folks, sometimes this is rather disheartening. All right, it says smart cities. The UAE has made significant investments into projects for smart cities with goals to build smart cities from scratch and improve infrastructure in existing cities. Since October 2013, the Dubai authorities have undertaken a mission to transform Dubai into a smart city with innovations centered on six key areas, transport, communications, infrastructure, electricity, economic services, and urban planning. See, they're driving everyone into the technocracy. The Digital Dubai Authority was established to support the citywide initiative to transform Dubai into the world's smartest and happiest city. In December 2021, the Dubai paperless strategy was fully implemented across all 45 government entities in the Emirate. After being launched in 2018, these entities provide more than 1,800 digital services and over 10,500 key transactions. Examples of initiatives include the provision of public Wi-Fi, electric car charging stations, live traffic monitoring, and an e-wallet for the Roads and Transport Authority. 
UAE authorities will want to maintain the reputation of the UAE as a leading smart country and continuous public sector investments in large-scale infrastructure projects revolving around smart building will likely continue to grow, providing opportunities for United States companies. And let's look at this last section here on 5G. It says the UAE was the first country in the Arab region and fourth globally to launch its 5G network. Both Du and Edelstadt, the nation's leading telecom companies, launched limited 5G networks in 2019 along with the 5G-enabled ZTE Axon 10 Pro smartphone to both postpaid and prepaid customers. By the end of 2023, it is estimated that 16 million 5G smartphones will be operational in the region. With the UAE being at the forefront of technological advances and given the strong GDP per capita, demand for 5G services is predicted to be strong. Strong over the coming years. In June 2021, Edislat revealed a 6G project that is estimated to be around 100 times faster than 5G. They have invested in 6G realization by conducting research and developing international standards that are the main building blocks for the 6G ecosystem. The rollout and expansion of the telecom network and infrastructure in the UAE will likely offer business opportunities for U.S. companies. So as you can see there, folks, 6G is getting ready to roll out. Um, And they need to have this faster connection. I've done some research on this. And so some of us would be sitting there going, you know, what you push me from 3G to 4G to 5G, I don't need to stream uh, Netflix videos any faster. I don't need to be able to send uh, smart, uh, I don't need to be able to send emails any faster, receive texts any faster. Now, folks, they need this fast network because once you're transacting with the central bank digital currencies and they're operating the world on blockchain ledgers, they need the uh, infrastructure to be much faster. So you're not standing in the grocery store for a minute and a half waiting for the transaction to go through. It's it, it's so obvious like what's actually happening. But there you have it, United Arab Emirates, uh, Dubai becoming a smart country and a smart city, respectively. Um, I mean, this is pretty amazing stuff. So we're going to get into this uh, tomorrow in episode uh, 113. That's going to be the World Government Summit. And the title of this is, Are We Ready for a New World Order? And you're going to see these guys sitting up on stage talking about a new world order, something that all of us obviously would be criticized and called a conspiracy theorist for bringing up 10, 15, 20, 25 years ago, even though George H.W. Bush openly said, this is a new world order. Well, here we have it. This is 2022, and you've got world elites. You have international criminals. You have uh, mafia boss banksters and economic terrorists sitting up on a stage at the World Government Summit affiliated with the World Economic Forum talking about just that, folks. Are we ready for a new world order? Well, folks, it's already here. They're just connecting the dots. Ladies and gentlemen, I will see you tomorrow, episode 113, as we cover this discussion. Are we ready for a new world order? My name is Dustin Gold, and I am ready for bed. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Dustin Gold Standard, and you are listening to pain.tv slash gold. The Matrix is a computer-generated dream world built to keep us under control in order to change a human being. You're listening to the Dustin Gold Standard on Ping.tv.
Join the discussion at pain.tv slash gold.